just going to say we don't have to go on for forever. Um, so, oh. okay. So now we're on. Hello. Hello. All right. I'm 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 pleased to be back uh, to continue our discussion of uh, mindfulness with breathing. Mm -hmm. A manual for serious beginners. A little bit further over. No, when you do that, they only see half the book. Put it there. You go. Now bring it down. 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 There we go. That's too low. Up. There we go. All right. Yeah, I guess when I look at my thumbnail. I know, but if you Skype cuts screen and in in pieces so the skype that that one will show on skype all right so yeah it's a little hard to judge you know where things are framed on my end but uh thanks for helping me position it for people it frames it around the face so when you show it up beside your face you don't get the book you get your face uh, you have to show it up where your face would be and then they can see the book. Oh, I see. Okay. All right. Good to know. Good to know. Thank you. Okay. So we had left off on, we had finished with the third training. Um, and so uh, let's go ahead and continue now with the fourth training of Anapanasati. All right. And so, you know, I, I've jotted down some notes here. Uh, and, and, you know, I have some different questions about it um, that we can uh, that we can talk about. And so the fourth one states he trains himself calming the body conditioner. I shall breathe in. He trains himself calming the body conditioner. I shall breathe out. And so we had talked before about uh, in this sort of translation. The body conditioner here means the breath. Um, and okay. so, because the breath within this fourth tetrad, the idea is, is that you're, you're practicing and getting insight into the ways in which the breath conditions the body. Uh, and in this particular uh, training how it calms the body you can use the breath to calm the body mm -hmm. um and he said let let me interject something very sure. quickly there the, the thai language doesn't do singular and plural the way that english does so when bhikkhu buddha dasa is talking about the body conditioner he may in fact be speaking about the body conditioners more than one, but the Santicaro is hearing the the singular in the Thai and just saying singular, where in fact that should be translated as plural. Oh, yeah. Okay, so now that we're talking about there is more than one body conditioner, mm -hmm. and the breath is one of them, but feelings are another conditioner. For instance, if you get angry, your body can, will, uh, conditions will change. 
This is why they talk about red. The face can get red. Why? Because the blood is being pumped strongly, that the um, adrenaline is coming. So we also have to understand that there is more than one body conditioner that can help calm the body because when the feelings are calm, then the body will be calm. And when the feelings are not calm, then the body will not be calm. Mm -hmm. But that also has the opposite effect of calming the body down will also help calm down the feelings. Everything is interrelated. And in mm -hmm. that regard also, in order to calm the body with the conditioner of the breath, that means that in order to do that, you have to use the mind to condition the breath to condition the body by taking over the breath. But also the mind conditions the feelings. So in that thing, way to look at it is everything Thing, conditions everything. The mind conditions the feelings. The feelings condition the body. The body conditions the feelings. The feelings condition the mind. And it goes back and forth and up and down like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. And, and this is something to be observed, to start watching how things are conditioned so that you, in fact, can condition the body for instance to relax with the breath but then you might feel uh, by doing that calming you become aware that there, there is anxiety there that when the body wasn't really calm you could not understand or did not actually understand the anxiety that's something that I find quite amazing uh, that sometimes beginning meditation students go right to the issues of anxiety to where many other meditators will have to get their uh, practice well established before they're ready to start working with their anxiety because mm -hmm. it takes them a while to get the body calm so the, now the uh, um, uh, when the body is calm you can feel that internal tension that's still in the body once it relaxes mm -hmm. and so how are we going to condition that is again with thought because that that anxiety um, has come about from unwholesome thought. So when we condition the, uh, the mind with wholesome thoughts, uh, calming thoughts, uh, nurturing thoughts, it helps uh, calm both the feelings and therefore and the body. So when the feelings are calm, then the body can really be calm. So step one would be calming it with the breath, and step two would be calming it with the mind, and then step three would be calming it by calming the feelings. And then when the feelings are calm, the body can finally be completely calm. Mm -hmm. And so... I don't know that, if they bought that kind of detail in, in that book. And that's all wrapped up in the fourth training. is, And part of it, you know... What I've noticed about the trainings is that, on the one hand, some of them function as, you know, as it's called, a training. You're trying to learn to do something in particular. But on the other hand, they, some of them seem like they are also insights that you gain. You know, so it's an insight you need to do the training until you 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 gain insight into how, for instance, uh, the breath can calm the body or the mind can calm the body. 
you you gain that insight, but it's also absolutely yeah. Okay, just like the training or the skill of a musician that once he has the skill of playing that song, now you can hear it correctly. Mm-hmm. But until we have the skill, then it's hard to be able to see things correctly. Okay, so we're taking yeah. the analogy out of the music and hearing into uh, insight or understanding. So um, it's important to recognize, and you did mention it, but I want to emphasize this, that the entire practice of Anapanasati is every one of these steps is a training or a skill to, to be developed. <coughs> so long, deep breathing is a skill to be developed, but Calming, or actually step three then would be the experiencing the body. That's also a skill to be developed. And as you develop the skill of experiencing the body, you begin to experience things in different ways. An example of that would be that as the body is experienced and calming down, that's when we get in touch with that anxiety that was there all along that often is driving us subconsciously that we didn't know it but now we can actually see it we can uh, or experience that anxiety as a tightness in the chest or as a um uh some people experience it as a burning sensation or a tightness or whatever like that and basically what it is is it's the physical sensation of having uh adrenaline in the system mm-hmm. okay and so um, the, then the training goes further in the training of uh, um, step nine, for instance, is the training of experiencing the mind or investigating the mind. And this is very, very much associated with right view. And that the one point that's not actually in uh, Anapanasati as a sati. In other words, there is no sati that is a step. Because every step is sati. Mm-hmm. And, and it says that in the sutta. Okay. Uh, but when, when that um, uh, sati is translated into English, it becomes a very passive kind of statement. Like mindfully he breathes and mindfully he breathes out. Misses all of the strength and power of what needs actually to be done. Mm. Mindfully. Yeah. here this sati means you grab hold of that breath mm-hmm. okay and it's a training to be done he understands that this is okay so the next point then would be step 10 of anapanasati is that it is uh gladdening the mind as a, a skill to be developed yeah all right yeah and also then going back into the vedana that sukha is now also a skill to be developed. Yeah. Okay. And that's a very important point that I want to make up uh, so that you get it absolutely completely. And that is, is that using the analogy of the piano, you're, you're not going to gain the skill of playing a piano by playing baseball. Right? Right. Yeah. Therefore, 
for. If your intention is to develop the skill of sukha or joy or pleasure or satisfaction, then you actually have to practice joy and satisfaction. Hmm. That's an important point. It's not going to happen on its own. It has to be developed as a skill, just like you're not going to learn to play the piano by playing baseball. You're also not going to learn to uh, develop sati or, uh, excuse me, uh, sukha, unless you're actually getting some of it to practice with. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does, yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is where so many meditators go wrong is, is because they whatever practice they're practicing is because they want sukha. Mm-hmm. Right. That they don't have. But here we have to develop it as a skill, which means we have to have it to develop it as a skill. And part of the trainings, the ordering of the training is laying the groundwork for you to be able to more effectively be able to say cultivate PT and sukha, which come in the in the future training. So training in the long breath and 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 observing the long breath and the effect, gaining insight into the way it calms the body, practicing the short breath observing the way in which it agitates the mind and the body, and then observing the breath, you know, experiencing the breaths, and then finally using those insights and those previous skills to calm the body are, you know, all prerequisites to enable you to more effectively be able to summon up sukha and and, and, uh, quicker and more efficiently so that it's not like a ooh you know sukha appeared how did that happen you're doing you're doing it again and again so that you can okay. make it a habit you know all right let's look at it in a little more formal way uh, and i'm going to bring in the reference of two suttas here besides the anapanasati sutta one is sutta number 19 in the Majjhima Nikaya, two kinds of thought. And other one is in 117 in the Majjhima Nikaya, and we're talking about one's right effort there. Okay, so this sense then that one's, if one's right effort is to be used for the development of sukha, then one's right effort requires then that one have, uh, according to 117, that one's right effort is to remove unwholesome thoughts and to replace it with wholesome thoughts. Okay, that's a key point, to have the wholesome thoughts, because if we do have wholesome thoughts, those wholesome thoughts will then be the basis for the development of sukha. Mm -hmm. Unwholesome thoughts will have the basis for developing dukkha. So naturally, wholesome thoughts are going to have the, for the development of sukha. Now, the, in sutta number 19, in the point about the two kinds of thought, the Buddha draws this analogy. 
imagine the, the cow herd is taking, um, let us say, through a populated area. So he's got to keep the cows on the road. He can't let the cows just wander. He's got to keep them in line. And so he's there with a stick, and he will whack this cow and whack, whack that cow to keep the cow from staying, stepping on a child or knocking down a uh, food stall or whatever like that. Because if it if that cow, cow steps on then he's going to, if it knocks down a food stall, the owner of the food stall is going to call all of his friends over and going to give the, the, uh, uh, the cow herd a whole lot of trouble. And mm-hmm. so this cow herd knows that he's got to keep those cows in line while he is in this populated, right? <clears throat> but once he gets the cows out to the area where he's going to put them in, in the pasture say that they're going to be now eating the scrubs of the uh the rice after it's harvested and so here he can look at the cows and sit under a tree and just watch them to note that the cows are there Mm -hmm. you got that yeah okay so this is two-thirds of the story so let's look at that in the sense that uh, the beginning meditator has to actually be on guard to keep the cows in order, to whack that cow and to whack this one, but it's not whacking it in the sense of harming the cow or harming ourselves by whacking ourselves with our thoughts, but rather that we know that by whacking that cow and moving him out of the way, he's not going to cause damage. He's going to be uh, uh, doing his journey wholesomely and not being unwholesome and so that's how uh, all beginning meditators have to learn to practice mm-hmm. is in this way of whacking the mind to keep bringing back in wholesome thoughts over and over and over again now we put this back into the context of anapanasati and this is exactly what we mean by step 10 of gladdening the mind so step nine of gladdening the mind would be looking at that cow to see is that cow about to step on a child if it is i'm going to whack him step 10 then is the whacking is is that get back in line let's have a wholesome thought okay okay and with those wholesome thoughts then once we get the mind completely wholesome so that we have only wholesome some thoughts that's a much more restful place than to being on guard to make sure that the thoughts are wholesome because now we're starting to develop the habit of having wholesome thoughts one after another after another okay so having wholesome thoughts and only wholesome thoughts and the feelings that are associated with one wholesome thought after another then can be an easy guide uh, easy man's guide to what is first John. First John is the ability to get into wholesome thinking and maintain it and mm-hmm. stay in that wholesome state. So getting the mind into that wholesome state is very much like having the cows when they're out on uh, to get to the pasture. But once they get to the pasture, now uh, the goat herd doesn't or the cow herd doesn't have much work to do because all he has to do is to make sure that the cows are there. Right. So we can actually sit under a tree and watch the cows. He doesn't have to be out there with a stick anymore. 
And in fact, the Buddha actually mentions that the cow herd can sit under a tree to watch the cows. So this is the first jhana then, is, this, is the state to where all of the sorts of wholesome, one after another, after another, one wholesome thought after another. And this is a habit that we can form by taking the right effort originally of removing unwholesome thoughts and putting in wholesome thoughts. Now, this is the part that is missing in most meditation practices. And it, uh, this is something that should be in the Anapanasati Sutta someplace in there of talking about that we have to put in these. And, and in fact, it's in the gladdening of the mind section. I'm sure that that book has a gladdening of the mind section. Yeah. Um, in one of the books on Anapanasati, um, uh, it, <laughs> the funny part is, is that I've, remember exactly it's after page 200 where this part of the book is talking now about um uh, gladdening the mind and bhikkhu buddha dasa just happens to reference it in the sense of you should be doing this from the very beginning this is the very first thing that you do and yet he waits until page 217 to say that mm -hmm. and you have all of these book readers that are reading and practicing and reading and practicing and it's only on page 217 when he says oh by the way this is what the first thing you do is to start gladdening the mind you have to take the right effort to take the unwholesome thoughts out of the mind and put wholesome thoughts in and part of the, one of the really wholesome thoughts by the way that you could breathe you could take in is actually a thought that's almost nonverbal. let me give you an example of the kind of the thought is very wholesome and not did you see that that takes thinking why because there is sati in there to take that long deep breath and know that it's a long deep breath and then to take an out breath and to know that it's a long deep out breath is a kind of thinking mm -hmm. but it's wholesome thinking okay so now we're talking about a distinction between a kind of thinking that is verbal and a kind of thinking that is not verbal because the next point in the sutta is where the buddha says is that once the mind gets completely wholesome and that there's only one wholesome thought after another after another over a long period of time then the meditator begins to that is a bit busy that too takes a lot of effort and so then what happens with the meditator is that we begin to put space now between the wholesome thoughts the Buddha actually says it in the sense of why should I keep having one wholesome thought after another when I don't even have to do that much mm. And so we start putting spaces between the thoughts. Now, when we, begin, when we begin to see those spaces, really, when they start to grow, that's when the, uh, the let us call him a budding jhana dude, he begins to see now the distinction between the first and the second jhana is merely that the second jhana is beginning to put spaces between the wholesome thoughts. Okay. Okay, so that space can grow and grow.
Now, in that point, that when the when the space of and what we're talking about is the space between verbal thought, that constant talking to ourselves that that we're doing, constantly running a dialogue. Now we're beginning to slow that, not slow it down in the sense of how long it takes to have a thought, but by putting gaps between the thoughts and beginning to see those gaps. Mm-hmm. That's even more peaceful and more sublime than having only wholesome thoughts. But having unwholesome thoughts is dukkha. Mm-hmm. Having a mixture of wholesome and unwholesome is still dukkha. Having only wholesome thoughts is sukha, but it also is uh, effortful. And so the next step would be to go and just allow these um, verbal thoughts to subside, leaving other kind of thinking and experiencing to happen. And this is when uh, uh, the feeling of everything is really okay. Everything is really, really super fine. And And the feeling of, wow, this is so nice is the kind of uh, feeling that is arising. That's not a thought anymore because we're not doing verbal thinking. So that while this is nice is much more of a feeling or a realization rather than a thought or a statement. You get what I'm coming from? Yeah. This is what, this is why it is called, uh, or gives the analogy uh, for the second, Johnny, is just that the pity becomes strong. It becomes, um, I would start to use the word overwhelming, but it's not overwhelming. It's just really, really present, and you feel really, really good, okay? But <clears throat> when that feeling subsides, that, that grand, wonderful feeling subsides, then that means that all of those feelings are still there, that 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 wow sensation of wow how nice it is also subsides into being kind of ordinary and so basically what we're saying is is that uh the whole process is a process of calming or relaxation so the first uh uh, getting into first jhana is a relaxation to come out of unwholesome mind so the first jhana is only wholesome only wholesome only wholesome and uh, this, uh, those only wholesome thoughts begin to get a space between them so that there is no thoughts left. There's only feeling left. Only the Vedana, only the Sukha and the Pity that's left. But that too is a kind of busyness that we can relax even further beyond that. Okay, so that actually what the jhanas are is just one relaxation after the other. One's right effort is to go into more and more wholesome, including once the mind is completely wholesome, then we even drop the wholesome uh, uh, dial or monologue inside. And so I thought that I would let you um, appreciate that about that uh, that analogy of the cow herd of getting the mind into that state. So this is the direction that you're going for is first off, getting the mind to be only wholesome and then learning to maintain that for a long period of time because this is 
one of the things that most Western meditators, they're greedy. They want more and more and more and more and more. Well, guess what? First jhana is complete satisfaction. If you can do first jhana, you're completely satisfied with it. And yet the, uh, the practitioners not even having first jhana, they want two and three and four jhanas, maybe eight or nine jhanas. Who knows how many jhanas we can make up in numbers just so that I can have more goals that I cannot meet. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so really the, the whole practice that the Buddha is, uh, is pointing out here is the practice of, of getting first jhana that we have to develop the skill of getting into first jhana by guiding those thoughts with a, with a stick, a happy stick, or maybe a carrot, but you guide the thoughts to where they're all wholesome. Once we get the thoughts all wholesome, all the time, over a long period of time, this is what we mean by applying the mind into the wholesome and sustaining it into the wholesome. Sustaining it but out of the hindrances completely. This is the first jhana, and that that's the major skill development place is to develop that uh, so that you can control the mind to keep it wholesome. Once we develop that skill, then we can begin to put the gaps between the unwholesome thoughts. But most meditators, when they put gaps between the wholesome thoughts, they're going to put unwholesome thoughts in those gaps instead of just. Ease. So we're looking for a practice of ease to make things easy. And the first is just to keep the, uh, the cows from stepping on the kids, to keep the cows from knocking down the furniture, to keep the cows in only wholesome thought. And then we can just watch them to maintain. The only job now is to make sure that they're wholesome. And that's how we would say sustain the first jhana and that's what needs to be practiced is that sustaining of the third of the first jhana and then later the skill of leaving the first jhana is when we start putting the gaps between the wholesome thoughts what's a and so yeah i just wanted to sort of uh jump in and acknowledge that so this training in particular, you know, I'm not an expert in, in different uh, teachings on the Anapanasati Sutta, but I'm aware that some teachers will say, okay, the fourth training, this is the one where you go ahead, you take a nice 10-year gap, you know, and this is where you master all the jhanas. Uh, and you have to master them, you know, before you move on. And so, uh, you know, some people, I think when they hear that, it throws them off. Um, and so maybe... Oh, I'm is, intending to throw people off. I'm intending to do that. Yes, yeah. I, because they have been trained wrongly in in the... Uh, uh, you see, if, if you think of it like this, they're making exactly the same mistake that Siddhartha Gautama made. He made that mistake. He spent six years making a big mistake. He was practicing jhana for six years. Mm. And he was making a mistake because he was doing it the hard way. Yeah. 
And when he would come out of jhana, there the hindrances would be again. Yeah. That's why the major changes is to get this first jhana completely, completely developed, rather than a little bit of first jhana, let's jump into the second jhana. A little bit of the second jhana, fine, let's go for the third. Third jhana, fine, let's go to the fourth. But when the dude comes out of any of those states, he comes back not to first jhana, which is his new base. He goes back into hindrances. And that was what was happening to the Buddha also. That's the problem with the jhana practice is, is that it's, it, it, uh, it only is valuable when you're doing it. But uh, when you practice correctly, then you can get yourself into a really good, wholesome state and maintain that all the time. And the only place to go is from ho- not from wholesome to unwholesome, but from wholesome to a little bit less wholesome. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot of confusion out there about jhanas and um, because, you know, the way people talk about them are different, the way people define them are different, and I think that... That's because they're, they're, here's the reason that that happens. Number one, bad translations. Number two, people talk and they don't read the suttas. Number three, they talk some more, and then their students talk, and certain, soon you have diversity. Have you ever heard of the, uh, the, the game is called telephone? Oh, yeah. And the kids will play around it where you've got ten kids in a row, and the teacher will, uh, will whisper into the first child's ear a little story. The first child will tell that story in the ear of the second child, and then after they go down through it, then the tenth child gets to tell the story out loud to impress with everybody that the story is not the same. It's, it may be completely different, and every child added their little t- bit and piece to it. Yeah. This, okay, this is one of the reasons why so many of us want to go back to the original teachings of the Buddha, right. rather than going with the commentaries and right. uh, later literature, to where some people say, oh, I want it all. <laughs> and so they they want all of it, and so they they uh, get stuck in uh, later literature often. Yeah, and so I think it's good to clarify. You know, I think I think for a certain type of practitioner, the predominant understanding of jhana would be what they sometimes I think people call like the Vasugi Maga style jhana. You know, which are very hard states of absorption. Um, and I think that people think that if they're not in these sort of really hard, you know, states of absorption where, you know, they become completely absorbed within rapture and they don't have any uh, sensation of their body and, and, you know, these types of things, that if it's not that, then it's not a jhana, right? Uh, like, you would know, because it would just be like, all of a sudden, boom, you know, you're in a hard jhana, and if it's not that, then it's not a jhana. But what seems to be the case, and what I'm understanding of it, what you're... It's interesting. The sutta. It's interesting, you, it's interesting you're using the word hard. Hard jhana, yeah. Some people refer okay. to that as hard jhanas. 
All right, guess what? There is no sutra reference to hard jhanas or soft jhanas. There is no reference in the suttas to vipassana jhanas versus legitimate jhanas. There is nothing in the suttas anywhere about wet or dry. Also, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa has been known to say that the Buddha only taught one kind of meditation. The only meditation he taught was Anapanasati. And if you see the way that the Anapanasati is structured, especially the Vedana section with the Sukha and the Pitti, which are the key points, and every, and you can then suss out that the entire practice of Anapanasati is to generate the first jhana. Yeah. That's what it's for. There's also suttas number 36, where it, um, I, I read it to some students from time to time. I can get it out and read it to you, but um, it's in sutta number 36, and the reference is to the rose apple tree, where the Buddha was saying, um, this was basically at the point in time when he crawled out of the creek that he couldn't get out of because he had emaciated himself and did not have the strength to even stand up and walk. And that's when he recognized, how could I have the, the strength that I need to practice and gain uh, enlightenment? Yeah. And then he referenced the rose apple tree, and he says, while I was a youth, when my father was uh, doing a plowing ceremony, that I sat under the shade of the rose apple tree and went into first jhana. And then he asked the question, why have I been now recently afraid of that sensual pleasure of the sukha of the first jhana, when in fact it has nothing to do with sensual desire. And then he said, uh, then he came upon the point of, now I know that the first jhana is the path to enlightenment. Now, I know that's going to blow a whole lot of jhana dudes right out of the water, but that's <laughs> exactly what the whole point is, is that it's not getting yourself into some higher jhana, uh, that you don't have the skill in, so you're easy to, uh, to fall out of it, but rather that we have to uh, practice this first jhana to keep the thoughts wholesome until we get them to the point that they are naturally wholesome. That's the whole point of it, okay? And that's why first jhana is about applied and sustained thought, so that we can apply the mind to the wholesome and sustain it and keep the mind in a wholesome state all the time, every thought, one thought after another. And now, when we know that we are thinking only wholesome thoughts, we can relax our vigil on the thoughts and just let them be wholesome. And that's now the fruit of the first jhana. The fruit of the first jhana is to relax, knowing that all of the thoughts are wholesome. And it's a very pleasant abiding. Yeah. So uh, I've also taken a look at, um, uh, excuse me if I pronounce his name wrong, uh, Tanisaro Tanisaro. Tanisaro. So he has a book um, called With Each and Every Breath. Um, and, and he gives some uh, criteria for the, for the jhanas. 
And so the way he defines the first jhana is he says that uh, there are five, there are five elements. There's directed thought. There's evaluation. There's singleness of preoccupation. He calls it. I think that's exactly what we're talking about here. The applied and sustained thought. We're talking about it. He. uh, directed thought is the application, uh, and then uh, the sustaining of the thought is just to monitor to make sure that they're all wholesome. Right. So we're using slightly different language, but we're saying the same thing. And there's PT and there's sukha. Right. Right. And then... And the sukha was- comes from the fact that you're only having wholesome thoughts. Okay. okay. And you begin to experience that everything is wholesome. Mm-hmm. Because dukkha is when we're experiencing things are not satisfactory, they're not wholesome. But once we have only wholesome thoughts, then we have the feeling of everything's all right. No dukkha here. And then the second jhana drops directed thought. He drops evaluation and so what's left is discursive thoughts or the thinking or the verbal kind of thinking is what's dropped in the second jhana yes that's correct leaving nothing but the pity and the sukha as the predominant experience and then uh, and the way he uh, a little analogy he gave was sort of like uh, of a camera you know so the first Jhana, it's like you're looking into the frame, into the, the, the view of a camera. Uh-huh. And you're sort of conscious that you're looking into the, into the view of the camera. But in the second jhana, just your consciousness sort of drops of it and you're sort of embedded within it. Yes. Okay. I guess that's why people uh, start use silly words like absorption. Uh, okay. But I would call the word absorption a silly word to use. And yeah. because absorption is silly, so is the word immersion. I think yeah, absorption throws people off because they they're they sure do. pretty uh, spectacular. And sometimes they might be in a jhana and not... People you know. are really looking for something special, where in fact these jhanas are quite natural and normal. If the human being did not have the capability of experiencing these first jhanas from prehistoric times, then the Brahmins would have never sat down to try to develop them as a skill. Let me give you some examples that when someone is um, uh, reading a book, they can become absorbed in that book. So that they read a paragraph, they know what's in that paragraph, they're uh, eager and anxious to get to the second paragraph, and they're paying attention to it. They've applied their mind to that reading, and they're absorbed in it. This is very similar to the first jhana, to where a lot of people, when they're reading, they'll read a line 
and then they'll have a thought about it. And then they'll read another line and have another thought about it. And then they'll read another line. And now they're thinking. And now the mind, now the eyes are moving along the line. And they're not, think, they're not reading anymore. The eyes are just on it. But the, but the mind is not paying attention to the paper anymore. It's thinking about the thought that was kicked off. Okay. That's the ordinary mind. Mm-hmm. Which means that we have to be, to in order to read something, we have to be interested and curious about it. Mm-hmm. When somebody says, here, read this, and you start reading it, you may not like it, you won't finish it. You've got to actually want to read something in order to be able to take the effort that it takes to actually read it. Yeah. Right? That's where the inspiration then or the insight is with uh, that we have to uh, have uh, the desire to read the mind right now. It's not like wanting something that we don't have, like wanting enlightenment that we don't have right now. Wanting to read what we've got right in front of us is a different kind of want because there it is. We want it and we do it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. That's the same thing that we're looking at with jhana is that you have to want to be able to keep the mind in that wholesome state, which means that in the reading, you would want to keep track of what's actually being written. One wholesome statement after the other in the mind of first jhana versus one statement after the other one in the text. That's what we mean by applied and sustained thought. Okay, now he's ta- he uses the word evaluation, but the evaluation is to evaluate to make sure that this is a wholesome thought or to, uh, to evaluate it to see that it's not a wholesome thought and to throw that out and put a wholesome thought in. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So, um, then the, that part uh, drops away in the second jhana. So let me give you a natural example of the second jhana. Uh, I'll give you both a primitive example and a modern example. Mm-hmm. The, the most primitive example is here the two of us are dressed in our uh, uh, loincloth or maybe nothing at all, standing with our spear, and one of us sees a boar. Once we see that boar, our number one item is to catch that that boar, but we've got to keep our eye on that boar. If we lose sight of that boar while he's running away from us, we've got to chase him. We've got to watch everything that he's doing, as well as being able to jump over logs, run through thickets. But we got to keep our eye on that hog, because if he can disappear from us, we won't, we won't get him. This is then the second jhana, is because we're not thinking about something else. We're not thinking about all the logs hogs that we're jumping over we keep our eye on that hog number one keep your eye on that hog don't let that hog go out of sight yeah right okay that's the kind of second jhana is we keep the mind absolutely focused on um but uh but in this the real second jhana this is a very pleasant state to be in in that uh old natural jhana that I was mentioning, uh, there is a kind of comfort in it because um, the self, for instance, or who we are or where you are, I'm not concerned about. That while I'm chasing that hog, my eye is on that hog. If you're chasing that 
and hog, I might have that in kind of a peripheral vision, but you've got nothing to do with me keeping my eye on that hog while I'm chasing him through the thicket. Okay. Now let's bring that whole thing now to a much more um, modern point would be a Formula One racer. Mm -hmm. Where you've got to keep track of a whole bunch of stuff out on that race course. You've got to watch that track. You got to see what's going on because you got to be quick. You're going to have to watch what's going on and respond to it quickly. And so, in a Formula One racer, you know, they just have that on the streets of uh, Europe. They don't have it uh, like the racetracks that they have in the States. And so, some little old lady could wander out on that race course. If you have the thought that lady should not be here, you just killed her because you're going <laughs> so fast. All right. If you yeah. have a thought she shouldn't be here, you've missed her, or, or you've, yeah. hit, you've actually hit her. You haven't, right? You've got to be quick. That's what the point. That's why uh, racing is like it is. There, there are two kinds of racers: the quick and the dead. <laughs> okay, and that's the name of also of a cowboy movie for for gunfighters. You're either going to be quick or you're going to be dead. Well, that's, yeah. that's the quality of the second Johnny, except that quick means that you're quick to see exactly what the body, mind, functions are doing. And you become almost, again, I'm about to use the word overwhelmed, but it's not. Uh, but it's kind of a wow experience of all of the sensations and all of the feelings and all of the sensory input, because this is for the beginner at least the first time he's ever shut up and started <laughs> to look around yeah our whole lives we've been we've been spinning in thought and so this uh the the second johnny experience is a real wow but we can't get into that real wow correctly unless we come from a complete basis of one wholesome thought after another after another and then start putting some gaps in those wholesome thoughts and this mm -hmm. is where most meditators miss, is because they don't have that first jhana developed strongly enough so that they have only one wholesome thought after another, after another, after another. Okay? So when we have the wholesome thoughts, that means that we're paying attention. And so now we can go into just observing without the dialogue going on also. So the analogy then that the Buddha uses is the analogy of feelings that we become completely absorbed in the Vedana. The, uh, the example that he uses is imagine uh, a, a pond or a lake that the basis of the water is from an artesian well or from a spring, a big spring, not, not one that's trickling uh, where you get a, a glass of water uh, a minute or so. We're talking about a real gusher that's on the side of a hill, and after the rains come, then uh, the, so um, this is actually common all over the world and has been used throughout history that these artesian wells, these wells that just spring up out of the ground, the guys want to put a wall around it, a dam, uh, to, to, to collect this uh, cool, fresh water, except that uh, in the dam it, it's going to get a little bit heated. And so the surface water is going to be warmer than that deep water where that artesian well is, is not bubbling, but rushing up. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so now the analogy is is that the swimmer jumps into the uh, into the lake and swims down to where that artesian well is is uh, throwing all of this water. I, I tend to want to use the word bubbling, but there's not a lot of bubbling, but you can see the water is just turmoil because the hot and the cold are mixing together. And when you're in that in that place it's just so alive it's just i mean the body gets thrown around and all kinds of stuff the reason that i'm mentioning that is because when i I was a kid i actually uh uh, for one year of my life had access to a pond the landlord had a pond that had this artesian well uh, at the bottom of it and all the kids we just loved to go play in that part of that that pond because you had to actually dive down because it was about 12 feet or so down about the same as the swimming pool it wasn't really deep but wow was that such an experience and so when i read that in the sutras i said i know exactly what the buddha is talking about here you feel and i'll start to use that word overwhelmed again i mean this, this these feelings that we've got are just all over the place Mm-hmm. And that's what happens when we become awake to what's happening in reality. The reality of the situation that you're in right now is, is that there are tens of hundreds of thousands of things happening to you every second. And you're not paying attention to any of that stuff because we're listening to what the mind is thinking. Right. But when the mind becomes quiet, then the, the sensory awareness becomes explosive. And we can feel every little part of every little finger so when the breeze blows on the hand it's the whole hand lights up mm-hmm. okay and we become vibrantly alive this is where this the what they call the pity gets really strong uh is the sensation of the wowness wow what a nice thing this is okay so that's what the second genre really is about in that analogy um of being in the artesian well uh, because you're in in that area where the warm and the cold water are mixing as to where there's a lot of turbulence with all of that water coming out of that artesian well also and it's a huge sensory experience okay and now he wouldn't have used that analogy because it's kind of an unusual analogy a lot of people I would imagine I can tell that story to 10,000 people and only a few hundred will know because they've never been in an artesian well. Yeah. They've never been in a lake that, that was fed by an artesian well. But I happen to have been in, a, in a, uh, and played, gosh, what a lovely experience that was. Not enough to make me want to go back to Shiraz, South Carolina, to go back to that pond. But uh, I have fond memories of it. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, you know... Um, so, I was kind of reminded of a memory uh, of when I was very young in school, you know, and you spend a lot of time sitting at your desk, um, sometimes just sort of staring into space. And uh, I had a memory, it's funny the things you remember, but I remember that I would look at my pencil and um, I would sort of be thinking about my pencil and then for whatever reason, it would it was like I sort of zoom in a little bit, and then all of a sudden it was like I was sort of like uh, there wasn't thinking, but it was like I was with the pencil, you know, and then 
Mm -hmm. I would sort of zoom out and I would be back and then I could zoom into the pencil and zoom out. And I think, I don't know that I was getting like PT and Suka, but it seems to be maybe like there was a little bit of uh, first into second jhana. Ah, that's an important point that you're making. First off, I would give it, uh, that that what was going on is is that because you were focusing on that pencil, that you weren't actually thinking about the pencil anymore, that you had actually gone into no thought, so that you were actually there with the pencil. Okay, yeah. that is a factor of, of second jhana, but it is not all of the factors of second jhana. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and so this is what we're talking about is is that the jhanas actually have a group of factors, and that first jhana has five factors. And then when we after we gain those five factors, and that we become uh, skilled in those five factors, because we're only interested in getting the skills for the five factors, we're not interested in second jhana. That's the problem is to get the kids or to get the meditation students out of desire for the second jhana because the desire for the second jhana is not going to take you to second jhana. It's just going to take you out of first jhana <laughs> with desire. No. What we have to do is get the mind so satisfied with all of the wholesome thoughts that we can begin to allow gaps in the wholesome thoughts. Yeah rather than wanting second John. Okay, but here you're talking about, you You just confirmed what I was talking about earlier, is that you kind of naturally fell into that no-thought state. Mm -hmm. But it didn't have all of the other factors. Right. So, yeah. So every, everybody from time to time will fall into a no-thought state. So that sort of brings forward the point that, like, uh, you can have the different factors sort of at different levels. So, you know, sometimes you can have stronger PT, sometimes you can have weaker PT, sometimes stronger supra, sometimes. Exactly. And so you can be in jhanas, but in sort of like different uh, configurations of it. Like, you know, like you could be in the first jhana, but like it can, it can be right. different. So long as. Exactly. So the pity from from this session will not be exactly the same as the pity from the other session. But the fact that pity is there as a factor is the important part. And when you have all of the factors of the first jhana, that's what defines first jhana. But the number one issue above all is that we have to remove unwholesome thoughts from the mind and replace them with only wholesome thoughts. In the Anapanasati Sutta, we talk about it in the sense of gladdening the mind. In Sutta number 117, we refer to it as one's right effort is to remove unwholesome thoughts and put in wholesome thoughts. And then we use Sutta number 19 in, in, with that analogy of uh, the cow herd, that he's got to keep the, the cows uh, in, in line to keep them from causing any damage. But once he's got them in line, now he does, or uh, uh, when, it's, when it's safe because there is no danger and he just only got wholesome, now he can even relax that so that he doesn't have to, he can just make sure that they're wholesome. After, after that, 
um, that everything is wholesome, that's when we begin to develop the second jhana. Now, here's the way to develop the second jhana is actually by removing some of the unwholesome thoughts. So one kind of unwholesome, one kind of wholesome thought would be like a little chant that one could go over it, tipiso, bhagawa, eraha, samma, sambuto, or we could go to a shorter one. And eventually what they would go for would be down to budo with boo on the in-breath and do on the out-breath. And budo, I would assume, is a wholesome verbal thought. But as we do boo on the in-breath and do on the out-breath, you'll notice that there's some space or some gap in there. Especially on the out-breath, if you do an out-breath after you do the do, if you wait for the next in-breath, and there's a big gap between that dough and the next boo. So that's the training for getting into the second jhana is by putting gaps intentionally using, again, anapanasati, using the breath to begin to put some gaps in there so that when you breathe out, you let the mind uh, relax and stop altogether. And then when you breathe in, you start to letting the thoughts start back up again. And so this is the training going in and out of first jhana is to put the mind to where it stops completely and then comes back into the wholesome and then stops completely and then remains completely stopped for a little while and then comes back into the wholesome and then remains uh, then goes back into the un, uh, into the silence again. Now, during that silent time, that's when sensory input gets very strong. What sensory input? All the sensory input that's always been there that we weren't paying attention to because we were too busy thinking. Now that we're not thinking, we can actually experience. Mm-hmm. And so this is why the word absorption would be used is because, number one, we talked about it immediately in the sense if you're going to jump into an artesian well, you're immersed. <laughs> that's immersion right there. <laughs> That's absorption. You're absorbed in it. It's all over you. You have good tingly feelings all over your body. (laughs) (laughs) And and so does he, so the third jhana uh, is when the PT falls away and you're left with a preoccupation. and it's described as a sort of a solid, still energy. Um, and so in the example of the well, this would be maybe like if the bubbles, you know, there weren't so many. The bubbles are, are sort of like the PT, right? The sensation of all the, uh, the turbulence. This would be like you felt you fall into a very quiet, stable uh state where you're not thinking um but it's very you're very happy and contented that's the sukha the the predominant exactly right but and and so basically what you could say would be is, is that you you get used to being completely absorbed in all of the sensory awareness that we have been ignoring our whole lives so now that we're really paying attention to it, it feels a bit overwhelming in the second jhana. In the third jhana, it becomes kind of ordinary. So that we're 
left with that, that feeling of well-being and happiness and peacefulness, but it's no longer as exciting as it was in the second jhana. Yeah. And that's why... Second jhana is, quite, is, is actually exciting. Now, isn't that interesting that we're coming from unwholesome thinking down to a more restful place of only uh, uh, wholesome thoughts, down to another place of uh, where even the thoughts themselves uh, have gaps and spaces in it, down to the point that now there's a point where there's no thought at all, and still that is quite exciting. And so now we even want to still that excitement of the second jhana down into the third jhana, is by stilling that excitement also. Okay. And by the way, we have gotten kind of off topic with the with the point of the fourth tetrad. So I guess we could do that one next. But I will leave you with this. That let us say that the uh, four jhanas are like a violin with four uh, strings. Right. I, I think I've seen a violin occasionally that had five, and for, for sure string basses will sometimes have five, but normal get, uh, uh, violins have four strings, okay? To get that first string to sound on a violin requires the whole violin. It requires the body, the neck, the bridge, at least one string, the nut, the curl, all all of that stuff in order for that violin to make one note is the entire uh, violin. To make the second note sound, all we have to do is just add one little string. And then to get the third note to sound, all we need to do is just add one more little string. And then to get the fourth one to sound, we need just one more little string. So in fact, getting the violin violin in the first place was almost all of the work. That's the way that we should approach the jhanas also, that almost all of the work is going to be getting into the first jhana. And that's the jhana that the Buddha says is taking one to enlightenment anyway, is getting the mind into wholesome thoughts and being able to maintain and sustain that. And so I would say that it would be like this, that 90% of one's effort is going to be to get into first jhana. After that, uh, the effort that's taken is is no effort at all, or taking the effort to stop making effort. So uh, uh, from 90 to 95 would be then the second jhana, and then to 98 would be the third jhana, so that the fourth jhana is really easy to move in. Now we only got... 2%, 90% 2%, 90% of all of the work that we had to do was to get into the first jhana. That's the way that we should look at it. And yet everybody says, well, I don't care about the first jhana. That's ordinary. I want the second, the third, the fourth. Hey, the fourth, I want eight of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So, And the real work is to get into that first jhana. So this is a quote from the book. It says, in our practice of step four, of Anapanasati, it is not necessary to enter jhana completely. We need only to have a sufficient and appropriate level of concentration to continue with our practice. That is, enough samadhi, the feelings of piti and sukha are also present. 
We shall need the feelings of piti and sukha in the next step of our study. So it, right. it's to me so the basically what he's saying is is that um, a better way of, of being able to say that would be is is that you don't need to be in First Jhana to do it, but if you do this, it will help you to go into First Jhana. That you do need to develop the piti and the sukha. Right. But but then we can also begin to do the fourth tetrad, uh, and so. Let's uh, postpone the next talk for uh, going into the details of the four tetrad because we need to compare it with the uh, Satipatthana Sutta and some other stuff. Uh, but you're absolutely right that in fact uh, um, the four tetrad is is part of what's used to help get into the first jhana. Yeah, 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 and I think that he was also saying it be to uh, belie the belief some people have that at this at the fourth training you have to master you know the four jhanas and then the four formless realm jhanas and and until that happens you can't move on and I think some people have taught it that way and so what they're saying is sort of like what you're saying the first jhana is really all that's needed to move on and even to move on to the fifth training you don't need you know uh, you just need the PT and sutta, uh, Sukha because those become the trainings of the fifth and the sixth uh, and so on. Uh, clearly and clearly most obvious, the most important thing is, is the removal of the hindrances and having only wholesome thoughts, thoughts of the here now. That's the most important thing without the removal of the hindrances without having the mind secluded from the unwholesome, we really can't do much of anything. Yeah, and I knew, I knew that this uh, particular like thing can't, would like be you a can't read a book. If you can't read, if you're not reading the book, if your eyes are just on the page, but you're thinking about something else, you're not reading that book. Yeah. Uh, so maybe I just so we uh, have quick, to have the focus. I had a quick question about something uh, um, that sort of becomes uh, within this fourth training, and we can maybe talk about it next time. But maybe just a quick word. So some teachers of Anapanasati focus on something they call the subtle breath energies, and I don't know if this is something. Uh, it gets a little reference in Buddhadasa, but this would be like uh, Ajahn Lee, for instance, um, subtle breath energies or, or prana. And so some teachers will now begin to talk about, you know, this, the, 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 the subtle breath energies, sensations, uh, and, and working on sort of uh, opening up the energies or looking for blockages in the energies. You know, breathing through blockages, uh, Im you know, imagining these energies. Is this something that uh, uh, Buddha Dasa taught, or is this something that you teach or, or find him? I, I have to confess, I come from an engineering physicist background. And I use the word energy the way that physicists 
physicists and engineers use it. The way that you were just using it is not the way that an engineer would use the word energy. Yeah. Okay. What we're actually talking about when they use the word energy and uh, from wherever uh, the reference, and it's very common. I hear people use, are, for physicists, misuse the word energy all over the place. That basically what we're talking about instead is sensation. Yeah. In the sense of there are, will be dull parts of the body. Um, have you ever heard of uh, Alexander Lowen? No. Okay, Alexander Lowen was actually uh, one of the well-known students of Freud. He was up there with Adler and Jung and Byrne. Okay, right. uh, and um, um, Alexander Lowen. Um, after he studied with Freud, he actually got him. Uh, uh, he went to Switzerland and got a medical degree because he was too old to get one in the United States. So he goes to Europe, he gets a medical degree, and he starts putting together Freud's work with the body. And that he came up with a system called bioenergetics. And I happen to have had a girlfriend for a couple of years who was already trained uh, as a bioenergetic therapist. And so she did some of that stuff with me also, uh, uh, teaching me all about it. And what I came to understand with that was is that... Uh, through Freudian psychology, various parts of the body in developmental psychology develop differently. So the, the person who has anal issues, and you've probably heard about the anal issues in the sense of the terrible twos and the child is learning to say no, no and um, these kind of people will kind of puff up their chest so many times throughout their life that they wind up being barrel chested. <laughs> Okay, yeah. so this is uh, the way that the body, and so you will have um, uh, the personality as a child grows up, uh, define what kind of physical body that they're going to have. It is not just what food that you eat, it's the mental food that you eat also. Now, in this system, they also look at that there are various parts of the body, um, and you might be able to do this with yourself or have one of your friends go with it and take your hand and put it on various places on the body to feel the various temperatures. For instance, many people, their butt will be cold. The, the butt itself will be two or three degrees cooler. Uh, and that, uh, by the way, the, uh, uh, the medical profession knows all about that when they're taking temperature. You know, you have oral temperature, you have rectal temperature, you have under the armpit temperatures and all of that kind of stuff. And that there's subtle differences uh, that are normal like that. Uh, and so this is one of the ways in that we can recognize that there are temperature changes in the body based upon what kind of flood blows and, and blockages and all of that kind of stuff is there as well as Alexander Lowen has various exercises to help wake up these parts of the body to get the blood flowing and to bring sensation back into those parts of the body. This is what they're talking about in energy. It's not really energy. It's that we're changing the relationship of the blood and the temperature and the sensations and that kind of thing. 
But when we use the word energy, we're almost using magical language. Yeah, I think it can be a little, right, confusing because some of the way in which I was kind of thinking of it was because some of the teachers, they, they talk about it as, um, you know, it's unclear, right? Sometimes it seems like, are they talking about something actually there or are they talking about just being aware of sensation? And so is it something similar to maybe the scanning method in Goenka where he would say, okay, now, you know, go to a part of the body and, and try to become aware of sensation there and, and, mm -hmm. and, and kind of maybe direct attention to that area until you begin to feel the sensations there. And so it is it, right. something similar to that, you know. Absolutely. But in to some go one step breath, further, what you're talking mm -hmm. to go one step further, the Goanka method, you could say then would be the organized way of doing step three of Anapanasati to experience the whole body. And he's doing it at a very, very systematic method. For stop at the top of the top of the head and move around and down and, and all of that been there. I've done that many times. Um, Goanka is a fan of the natural method. And the natural method has to do uh, in the sense of one by one as they occur, or taking things in a natural order of events as opposed to a formal structured order. For instance, Western education is formally structured order because all, all the first graders learn the same thing and then all the second graders learn the same thing and by the time the kid's in the third or the fourth grade, he may not fit into that class anymore. He may be advanced or slow, but they don't care. They're teaching fifth grade. This is fifth grade. You're in the fifth grade. You learn what fifth graders learn, okay? So that's the organized method. All right. A much more natural method would have the kid, the, the eight-year-old, doing calculus because the kid likes calculus. Yeah. That would be the natural method of doing it. Okay, so the natural method of waking the body up would be the part of the body that has something to say would be the part that you would want to pay attention to. An example of that, in fact, in the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, it spends a lot lot of time talking about how to use the hands and to uh, to bring it uh, to be aware of rasp, grasping reaching touching withdrawing uh, and and um, another one would be to uh, to keep the hands away from the face a lot of people touch their face uh, because of scratches or itches or whatnot like that so another way of saying it is that you're only going to allow the hands to do what you intentionally want them to do and that the, the, uh, the hands don't do things or the body stops doing things that are subconscious. Why? Because doing things that are subconscious is just more activity, not relaxed. And you can see people, uh, a good example would be in a waiting room, waiting for the bus or waiting for the doctor. And people are agitated. 
One guy's is, one guy's got his legs crossed at the ankles, and one of those foot is just bobbing up and down. He's really anxious, and all of that anxiety can be seen in his foot. Somebody else will have their legs crossed, and the one that's sitting on top, you can see that foot moving. You can see somebody with his knees just rocking back and forth and back and forth. Someone else is fidgeting and moving his arms around a lot. Okay, this is all unconscious behavior. But when we're sitting still in meditation, that's when we begin to have the awareness of the body as the body, just sitting there, just sitting and holding. And so the beginning uh, points would be uh, to learn to not move. That would be the first training of the uh, of the wholesome. Mm-hmm. But but we're not going to be able to d- live like that. So this is part of the training for the sitting practice. But when we're out in the world, now we're going to start watching what the body is doing. We're going to, uh, um, uh, if, if we're twiddling our thumbs, we twiddle the thumbs consciously by rolling the thumbs around each other and feeling all of the sensations or whatnot, rather than... Uh, um, uh, rolling the thumbs around uh, ignorantly, uh, not knowing what we're doing. So we begin to pay attention then to the subtle movements of the body. The subtle movements of scratching, uh, uh, adjusting postures, um, all kinds of things like this. So this is part of the experience of um, uh, experiencing the body on the road towards tranquilizing or bringing the body to a state of rest. And so this is basically classical Anapanasati, is to begin to watch the body with the intention of bringing it to rest. And we do that all day long, to start to be mindful of what is the body doing? If I'm shaking my head up and down, then I should know that I'm shaking my head up and down. If I'm talking uh, with great gusto and making a point, I should know that I'm making a point. What are my hands doing right now? What kind of gestures? What are they doing? What is my face doing? What are my arms doing? We start to pay attention and wake up to what the body is doing with the full intention of, okay, you can relax that too. If you catch yourself uh, agitated with with your foot shaking up and down, you can say, hey, man. Take it easy. You don't have to push that adrenaline out of the uh, body by uh, having that foot agitated. Look at what the mind is doing. Mm-hmm. If you stop agitating the mind, the body won't be agitated. Mm-hmm. So this is how we begin to put Anapanasati into practice throughout the day. Is to remember to look at what the body's doing to remember to look at what the mind is doing, to remember to look at what uh, the feelings are happening, to remember to look at these objects of the mind, these are uh, uh, the things that are worthwhile looking. And also in that regard, to begin to see everything is passing away. Everything is arising and falling and arising and falling, and Nietzsche just everywhere. That's step 13 of Anapanasati is to get a load of the fact that things are in constant turmoil, constant flux. Anything that lives starts to fade away and die. And so now we begin to see step 14. But we'll do that next time. We'll talk about uh, the four tetrad in our next call. Uh, but we can see that it very much ties in with uh, 
mindfulness of the body because these these clouds or these objects of the mind, if they're unwholesome, is going to have the body huge, huge feedback loop. So we get all kinds of information, start to look and pay attention. Yes. All right. Well, thank you once again. Wonderful. Wonderful. All right. This has been a delightful. Thank you, Alan. Yeah, I knew this was going to be a big one, but uh, it really was very informative. Thank you. I'll talk to you again soon. Go have some happy thoughts. Go have some wholesome <laughs> thoughts. <laughs> I will train myself. I will train myself, yes. Train See yourself, you. exactly. See you.